Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Oh, it's good again to be with you. And uh, not not as tired as last week after the Hasanah, but... I'm pretty close to it. What happened over Shabbos Shemabrachas in Baltimore? Are the people in Baltimore's Jewish community just as concerned about the issues of the day as the folks that are bugging you constantly up here in the New York, New Jersey area? Yeah, but they get less opportunities to do so, so they take <laughs> advantage of it. But Baruch Hashem at the Shemabrachas, people were, were quite understanding. Uh, it depends how much they had to drink about how understanding they were. But... Uh, uh, no, the, such a wonderful community, wonderful people, and Baruch Hashem Tzvi and Daniela Moskowitz now are very happy and wish them many years of happiness and good health together. Yes, Mazal Tov again, and uh, I guess even down there, people are just as concerned about this amazing world of and ours. Confused. And confused, I can imagine. Well, I, it, it's no secret what the biggest question of the week is. I, I was asked it a hundred times. I would assume that means you were asked it about 10,000 times in the last few days. So I'll ask you, uh, will, in fact, Jonathan Pollard be a free man before the holiday of Passover? I don't think so. Uh, I'm afraid, and as you know, for many years on this show when we've discussed it, you know that I, I've been very involved with him, visited him in prison, we've regularly interceded with uh, the last four presidents or five, um, that it would always be tied to some larger context until at least next year when his uh, parole comes up and he is due for a parole hearing actually now, and he waived it, uh, but not because he was refusing it, uh, as some of the reports said, but because, as I understand it, he they're waiting for information because he has a, a legal case pending, and he wanted to wait to see the outcome of that. In the same way that there were reports that he had refused um, this to be part of the of the deal, right? Um, and said that he didn't want his freedom to come at the expense of the lives of of the people in Israel, Jews in Israel. But uh, it seems that that is was he has said that in the past. But I believe that he really said uh, that he would consider it if that would come up. I mean, obviously, he wouldn't turn it down if he's given the chance to. To get out, but as you know, the deal is in free fall and uh, doesn't look like uh, this issue uh, will be resolved anytime soon, and certainly not uh, the release. And, and as you know, the White House has said all along that the president has not even considered it yet. Right, and we'll get to why it's in a free fall, the potential deal, in a moment, but let's go back for a second. So, waiving the, the, the right, I guess you'd call it, or the procedure to a parole hearing. You're saying it's because there's something legally that might be to his advantage to wait and have that hearing at a different time. That's what I, I, I was uh, told is the reason, uh, contrary to some of the press reports. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's 28 years. It shouldn't have to be part of a deal. It should be a humanitarian just matter, a matter of justice, and he should be let go. On. Right. We understand. Political opponent. It shouldn't be the. You know, a bargaining chip one way or the other, and then the press interpreted some of my comments saying, well, you know, he's, he's up for parole, therefore it's, a, it's a, of lesser and lesser value as time goes on, because ultimately at some point he will be let go, we, we, we hope. Uh, although, as you saw from the reaction, the editorials, the vicious editorials, some of the comments uh, that this evokes, this will, will not go down 
very easily. Even today, the, the level of uh, intensity of feeling. Are you referring to comments by certain Jewish members of Congress? I'm not talking about them necessarily. I was talking about editorials in the Washington Post, New York Times, many other places, uh, comments made by um, by law enforcement people, former, even though there are many, many who have come out for a long time saying uh, it's time to let him go. Right. But what's clear is that the reaction will be very strong in the anti-Semites and non-anti-Semites, but people who want to take advantage of the opportunity to, to smash Israel, or others who who legitimately, and even some of the Jewish community, who feel that, uh, given this crime, that there should be no intercession uh, or extra special effort. i got to give you my perspective on this, and you may say, oh, you're such a simpleton, Siegel. Uh, you know, some people object to, I, I understand the objection of it being part of a deal. I understand that. But two things. Number one, if, if in fact Israel is releasing hundreds of prisoners anyway, it, 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 w- w- would it be that bad if in fact he was included in such a type of, type of a deal? And the other thing I would say is there are people who fear, and by the way, I, I think that's the right word. There are people who fear especially in our community, that when he is released, there will be a celebratory atmosphere in Israel and the Jewish world. And I ask you, Malcolm, is that so bad when watching all these hundreds and hundreds of murderers, prisoners be released, and in fact every one of their releases turns into a massive party by the enemy? Very short-lived ones, and they know that they're staged. Uh, I do not believe that that will be the case. I don't think that's what he wants. I think from my discussions with him that he will go quietly. He will. He wants to build his life with his wife. He he has uh, been, you know, in isolation for seven years, in prison for more than ten thousand days. I think he wants to peace and quiet and to, to rebuild his life. He's expressed remorse. Uh, I don't think that the cases are parallel. The release of the prisoners. You know, I, I was once at a prisoner exchange where where the, with Syria after the Six-Day War, and I saw how they stood in the hilltops applauding, applauding, and when you saw just on the other side, and thank God somebody got a film of it, they took him literally and just threw him into trucks. These people, the ones, the prisoners who get out from the PA, you know, receive fifty or $100,000, and then they receive monthly pensions. Right, as noted. In- because they're really not treated, they claim they're not treated that well, not given uh, enough assistance. Um, but... But we don't operate by the same rules. This is not uh, a comparable case. He wasn't a terrorist, and he will, I think, want to live a quiet life, and there, there will not be massive celebrations when he comes to Israel. Obviously, people will go and welcome their people who have worked right. on his behalf for many years. Understood. And on the first point, it, I mean, I hear where you're going with the first point, but, but you, 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 wouldn't, you, you, don't, you don't like the point that at least gets some value for the hundreds that are being released. No. I think if he can get out, he should get out. Right, understood. The opportunity exists, and you know, there's no there's no uh, benefit to to refusing at that right. point. But but that but the deal was never, I think, as close as as the media try to to portray it. And and especially after the speech in Kuwait by at the Arab League by Abbas, I think he was sending a message that he was going to never going to allow the peace process to so-called process to go right. further and the negotiations to yield anything real when he 
he, in the same way as the cartoon three nose of years ago that you will remember, but many probably don't. Mm-hmm. But uh, but when he said we're not going to have an end to claims and conflict, no recognition of a Jewish state, East Jerusalem is the capital. I mean, all of the things that he knows were either subject to negotiation, but certainly not given that he knew were, some were red lines. Once he said those things, then it was a message that he was never going to come to an agreement. And many people have said all along, including Palestinians, that he will never come to agreement. It's not in his DNA. He is still Arafat's 40-year associate. And the same way Arafat walked away from deals, and he has walked away from very, gen- very or maybe even too generous offers, that it was apparent that that was exactly what the pattern was going to be again. Right. And the key here is that Israel has to, the world has to see that it was not Israel. You know, they jump on a on a, a tender offer for houses, not a new settlement as NPR and CBS were talking about. You know, a new settlement is being built. This is Gilo. It's part of Jerusalem. It's an old tender that was reissued. The timing wasn't good, as often is the case, but. Uh, it, it was not some sort of a provocative act that was meant to sabotage the the, uh, the deals. And if you look at the new textbook study that came out, you see that their textbooks continue to be full of incitements, calls for violence against Jews, uh, right? But with calls for violence, right? And and talks about pre sixty seven, right? But with all of that, with all of that, the only reason Israel canceled this release of the twenty six terrorists was because the PA goes and applies for admission to these international treaties and conventions. With everything you just described, it took that to finally have Israel say no more. No, it, it was actually before that, no, that it was over the failure to move the process since November. And that is what Netanyahu and others cited. It was before the application for the UN, um, the 15 UN conventions, which is a prelude to going to the to the agencies, and he said even last night or this morning that he's going to continue with that process, not going to back off something that Kerry and others raised, but Netanyahu already had said no or put off the release of the other prisoners who were supposed to be let out last Saturday night. Right. Uh, that was the deadline, saying that there's just no process, what progress, and what's the point of our continuing with gestures when there's nothing reciprocal happening. Right. Some might ask what the difference is between this one and the other three prisoner releases. Well, the first, first of all, the quality of the people was somewhat different. There were all terrorists, and many of them uh, were killers. But these well, the guy, the guy portrayed in the New York Times front page story was certainly a murderer. That's true. I said there were amongst them murders. This, this group was considered even more hardcore, more vicious, whatever. <laughs> but... <laughs> Levels of murderers. But yes, it's level of, of terrorism. And, and he's a level one murderer. Oh, he's a but, level but two. But the the first two of the conditions were different. First of all, there were talks going on. Uh, but you've seen the you know you had a secretary of state who was visited there fifteen times or sixteen times has tried, and the bottom line still is that the Palestinians are not forthcoming. Israel delivered on three of the four tranches of prisoners. At per at expense, at political expense, at at risk of security, some of them have been rearrested or been involved in in uh, terrorism. Uh, so the you know the the Israel, Israel had every right to say at some point, well, what are we doing this for? Right. It was not to sabotage the peace. Israel has shown, and I think repeatedly shown, that they're willing to go the extra step. And and Netanyahu, as you know, had a lot of opposition within his cabinet to all of this, and that's why the Pollard thing was not 
um, a bargaining chip as much as it was a sweetener. It was to give cover to Netanyahu to be able to go to his cabinet and say, look, if you reject this, you are all strong advocates for Pollard's release, we can get Pollard in the deal as well. And that was the intention was, right. to, I believe, to sweeten the deal and, and facilitate Netanyahu being able to get it through the cabinet. All right, so what's the Obama-slash-Kerry attitude now toward the PA? What will, what will the U.S., I don't want to say policy, because I don't know if it's going to be big enough to be a policy, but what direction will they go in now in terms of trying to pressure the PA to sit at a table or in terms of easing up on the PA at this time? Well, right now they may just withdraw generally from this and, and um, hold back and see whether the parties themselves or whether anything will happen between them directly or whether they will call for, for Kerry to return. As you know, Israel has said that, that Kerry was uh, was trying to be fair, and they, they have not been critical of his of his efforts. Uh, the Palestinians have been much more, and as I said, the speeches that Abbas has given, some of his media appearances, I mean, he talked about the failure, and you know, Abbas is somebody who's in the tenth year of his fourth year ter- four-year term, He's he's not a, a you know honestly elected official. He sits on top of a regime of corruption. Uh, he sits he represents half of the group. You have the Gaza, where again we saw rockets being fired and uh, deteriorating situation between Fatah and Hamas, contrary to some of the reports. Um, and and a really interesting billboard which uh, we should talk about in Gaza. So, you know, he comes into this in a weakened position. The the Arab League sort of gave him cover. It's what he does, exactly what Arafat did, that every time he wants to be able to say no to something like Jewish state, he runs to the Arab League, gets a resolution and say, oh, it's not me, you know. Jerusalem is, is a billion people have to vote on any concessions we would make on Jerusalem. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world in the web, jmnam.org. Malcolm Honline is with us, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents and Major American Jewish Organizations, the weekly update here at JM and the AM. You know, it's interesting. The um, uh, I don't know when we last spoke about I know we mentioned it last week because it was a decision that was uh, ready to be made uh, in terms of Ehud Olmert and his situation. But I think at, at, at different points in the last couple of years, um, we discussed how, I don't know if Israelis were, were numb to the whole thing already or, or they had, uh, you know, they were, they, as you said last week, a little bit sick and tired of the whole, you know, all the scandalous stuff that hits the papers in terms of government officials. But it, with all of that and all the background, I think there was something devastating about the final decision, the conviction that came through this past week of former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. Is that just me because I don't like these types of things in the headlines? Or would you say in Israel it also made a tremendous impact? Tremendous impact. And I think that uh, your earlier description is right. I think people are, are sick and tired of it. Uh, I told them that they could have a government in exile with the a former president, former prime minister, all these others who are <laughs> going to prison. But the, it is not a laughing matter. It's the image of Israel to the world. You know, every country has it. It's not unique to Israel. I don't even know if it's disproportionate. But what was it about this? What was it about this week? It, it, it got me, and I'm sure as you're describing, it got so many people, especially in Israel. What do you think it was, especially for those who expected it? What was it that was so devastating? 
Well, first of all, because of the level the person was prime minister, and second, and although most of the crimes, I don't think that they alleged anything took place when he was right. uh, prime minister, but Olmert also had such close relationships with people in the West, including myself. Uh, as mayor, he, he was engaged with everyone. There had always been rumors about, uh, you know, some shenanigans going on, but this the, the devastating nature of this after... Uh, his longtime assistant turned, and she didn't end up giving testimony. Now she's giving testimony that we could see another case being introduced against Ulmer and uh, uh, on further corruption, and it, it involves businessmen, it involves others who, who, who gave him uh, very significant amounts of money. I, frankly, I don't think he was a good criminal. Anybody who leaves $150,000 in cash in his office uh, has got to have raised certain questions, yes. and and to the, the extent of it, but it, you know, it comes at a, a, a on the heels of so many other cases over the last years that it's a cumulative effect where people, and I believe there needs to be some reform, uh, and and a really hard sentence that that he that the message is clear to other Israeli politicians that it won't be tolerated. And look how many other people went down in the same case, right? A whole list of people were convicted that day. Well, 11 people were convicted, but, uh, and again, it, it isn't over. It's still, there's there's still investigation going on, and as I said, another case with, with other people involved, and with her turning state evidence, she knows everything. She was his, you know, many, many year assistant and, and intimate and, uh, in, in, this, in the uh, his dealings. Right. Knew all that was going on, took the often the the cash, and uh, may may vindicate or or underscore the testimony of somebody from the states who, who had earlier seems like many years ago gave <laughs> testimony against him. Um, when he's sentenced later this month, do you assume there'll be jail time? I do. That that will be some scene, huh? It'll be very sad. I think it's not just for him and his family, but I think for Israel and. It's a message that, that Israel holds to account even the most powerful figures uh, and uh, know what escapes justice. Right. Um, before we get back to the Middle East, any reason to suspect that the Fort Hood attack of this week was jihad-related like the one five years ago? No. Nothing I, else? I've is... asked the question in the latest last night and no evidence of it. There are elections everywhere. We talk about the ones in Egypt in, in June, but I didn't realize this week there were election, local elections in Turkey which were described as a victory for Erdogan and will help him, propel him to another term as president in Turkey. Is that how you would uh, analyze the results of this week? Yes, he, he ended up with, I think, 44% of the vote. His party did. Right. Um, there are a lot of accusations of, uh, of corruption and distortion in the polls. Uh, and it would not be surprising. I think he he, uh, he he doesn't want to become president under the current terms. He wants to have a much more powerful presidency, but he is citing this as a mandate for him. And as you know, he has cracked down on everything from Twitter to, to uh, uh, the political opponents, uh, imprisoning hundreds of generals, journalists, law, uh, judges, I mean, he's going after everybody that could pose a potential challenge uh, to him. So this this was not the expected outcome. I think that people expected the AKP party, that's Erdogan's party, not to have done as well as it did. And uh, he could ride it for now. The uh, When is the national election? Very soon? Well, there are both parliamentary and presidential elections next year. 
Next year, meaning 2015? I think 2015 is the, uh, is the presidential. And in Afghanistan, there were also elections this week, right? Today. Oh, today's the election. And they are expecting the U.S. to complete its um, assistance program in Afghanistan at some point in the next year? Well, they haven't renegotiated the deal, as far as I know. And I think, uh, yeah, there will be expectations of an American pullout in cars. And I, our good friend uh, turned against. He can't run again. So there will be other people coming into power. You also have May 26, the Egyptian elections, 26 and 27. Oh, it's May. I thought it was June, so it's May. No, it's in May. Uh, a lot of things that are going to be taking place that are going to be very interesting. Uh, you know, in the Turkish election, six people got killed. So you know the level of uh, intensity, violence. Many people accuse the uh, police and officials of, of intimidation in, in the process of that election. I don't remember if it was Turkey or Afghanistan where they said people would stay home because of the threat of uh you know, attacks. You know, that's about the Taliban. That's in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. Um, in Turkey, you have a more and more repressive uh, regime, and the impact on society is, is felt. And there are people, I think more people may leave, uh, if, 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 although the economy has not been bad, as bad. And uh, What's the greatest fear? What's the greatest fear in Afghanistan for the West, that there'll, that there'll be no control at all over the Taliban, over al-Qaeda, because of no... They're coming back. And, they're, you know, they're going to fill the void as the U.S. leaves and that we're going to go back to the, to the earlier situation. And, uh, it, I mean, all these years later, it's, a, you know, I, could, and, uh, all these years. But look at look at Iraq. It's, you, you can see what is the fear for, for Afghanistan is that we're going to see what we see in Iraq today, which is a, a government aligned with Iran, um, supplying people into Syria the transfer point for the weapons that were on the Class C from Syria to Iraq to go to, to the Gaza, to, um, to, to Iran, and, of course, going to the Gaza, and still at no price uh, and no consequence for Iran for, for doing this or many other things that, that it's done. But if you look at Iraq, you understand what is the potential danger that despite the huge and trillions of dollars we spent, lives lost, we're seeing uh, uh, at best a split, an east-west split, and the uh, Sunni Shiite split, but that Iraq has turned into again a, a staging ground with Iran even more influential than it was. And does the technological era, as it stands today, help more than in the past? I mean, is there a way to monitor all this without having men on the ground in every one of these countries? Well, drones and other things play a role in Afghanistan. You see how, how the U.S. has used them. But, uh, but frankly, boots on the ground, intelligence on the ground, Israel has learned it in the... In but do you know how many countries we have to cover then? Well, we're not going to. I mean, it, it, the part of the problem is America withdrawal, but also because the, the credibility of the West in these countries is so diminished that uh, people feel that it's open season and that they can do what they want. Um, it's... Uh, and and the increasing message, I mean, when we look at, at and I think particularly the events in Iran are, are what is important. Look how Iran slapped the United States and the West, but particularly the United States, by appointing as its ambassador to the U.N. The, one of the guys who held 55 Americans hostage for 444 days in Tehran. Right. He's the U.N. ambassador. And God, there are senators now working to deny him a visa. Oh, the administration will. I know that they're they're talking about it. But it, it, it is unbelievable. And you see Iran's uh, provocations 
whether it's, it's their submarines in the Gulf doing things, whether it's support for terrorism globally, especially in South America and uh, other places, the, the, um, how they're organizing Hezbollah intelligence now for further crackdowns, how the, the negotiations with, uh, with, with Russia now for a $20 billion deal of oil for goods and two more reactors, but amongst those, quote, goods, are, are missiles, new missile shipments and things, uh, and, and they keep going ahead and doing these things. And, and what is the response that we see in a Voice of America broadcast? American officials praise the Khamenei for a fatwa, a religious ruling, banning the development and use of nuclear weapons, yet nowhere does this fatwa appear. There are 493 published, and, and there's a website of, of Khamenei. Nowhere does it mention such a fatwa. So what price is there? What, what, when they look at this and they say, what, what is the price that is paid for those who engage and violate their understandings and who uh, provoke, so it becomes open season? Spoke this week with somebody who left Syria in the year 2000. And uh, they said that, frankly, Israel needs Assad to remain in power in Syria. If not, if in fact he's toppled, the chaotic situation that will commence in the Middle East will be impossible for Israel to deal with. Do you think there's anything to that theory? Yes, uh, there are a lot of people who think that, and that the the best thing right now is the status quo, in a sense, uh, not that uh, so many people, maybe 200,000 have been killed, and you know, a million refugees from Syria just in Lebanon and that a very significant part of the population internally and externally are, have been uh, refugees. And, uh, but, the, but the bottom line is that there's no one there, none of the parties, that would be acceptable, that would be better. We, we don't see you know, forces of, of moderation, quite the opposite. Iran has extended its influence there. Uh, Hezbollah has extended its influence. They had a big victory in that village that we talked about near the Lebanon border, but it's a supply route. And we see the new assertiveness, and then the response. But the the um, I think that the anti-Assad forces are, are are weaker today. So you may have just this continuing, and there's no evidence that Assad will be out of office anytime soon. Uh, we have to be concerned about the continuing fighting and the training of thousands of people, and we see already the ramifications that the Prime Minister of Britain. Uh, said that they have to investigate about the, the both about the Muslim Brotherhood and about these guys and about attacks in the Middle East and, and coming to Great Britain. But that half of the time of the MI5, their intelligence is spent on, on these guys who are fighting in Syria, the, the infiltration in Britain of different uh, Islamist groups. And, and the truth is that the same thing is true here in the United States. And we... So the ramifications of what happens in Syria is not going to be limited to its borders, but I think you're going to see Iran more bold down because of it, Hezbollah in the north, Hamas being excited in the south, shooting more rockets. It's all interrelated, and that's what I kept saying for so many years, that in the age of, of globalization, we see it. We see it there playing out on a mini-scale, but it's really happening on a global scale. Right. Well, as you've said, I mean, Iran is basically Syria, is basically Lebanon, right? It's all, it's all basically the same effort that's going on. That's why Israel has to be so concerned. And the, and the continued drive for the Shiite crescent and for, for the more and more dominant role and the, the, the uh, violations of the sanctions, 
see that they have every month exceeded the uh, Iran, that is, the export of oil limitation that was placed on them. Right. And and we continued just to negotiate. There were negotiations this week. doesn't seem that much came out of it. But the West sits at the table, and it becomes a joke. By the way, what does Assad think of, uh, what does Assad think when he sees Putin and his activities in Ukraine and Crimea? Anything? Like, does it uh, affect him one way or the other? Yes, he says, you owe me a thank you. Basically, right? But it is true that right. events lead and, and send messages, and it's not just in the Ukraine, then it's China, right. in the China Sea, and, and North Korea, and every rogue state looks at this and says, look, you can get away with it. This is the time right. when the West is so weak, when the, the price you pay is so limited, and unless we really ratchet it up in, in serious ways, and I'm not talking about having to go to war, nobody wants to see right. American troops being sent everywhere, that isn't where you have to draw the line. By the way, I saw I saw an interview with George Will on this topic this week, and he, he said he the reason he's surprised that U.S. sanctions or statements are not or cannot be more effective is because of how, because we keep talking about the dependence of Europe on Russia at this point, right? We keep talking about the energy pipeline. He, he said that, that Putin is so desperate for the cash that he, does, he can't believe that the United States can't be so, and Europe can't be somewhat stronger, even if they're dependent on what's coming out of Russia, because he's so desperate for this cash flow to continue. I agree with that, and I think you could even go further that Putin, I think, is very shrewd and has handled this uh, intelligently because Russia is not a great power. Russia's economy teeters. It's, it's dependent. If we lower the price of oil significantly, Russia is the big victim of it, and he does not have the internal right. uh, economic strength. It's less money for him. It's much less right. money, much less, but he's making all these deals. He's, he's in the meantime selling weapons to Iran and Syria, and people think that this is some ideological position. He doesn't want to protect his port in uh, Latakia, in, in uh, uh, Tardis, in Syria, because it's the only port they have in the Mediterranean, etc. But, but, and he has ideological goals and to challenge the United States. But he's signing multi-billion dollar deals with Iran, and he's still selling the weapons to Syria. And the, uh, so the, the idea that, that Russia is a great power, and we can't challenge him. Right. Of course we can challenge him. And, and if we don't draw the line someplace, you see that now they talk about Moldova, they talk about other places, but, there'll be no limit. But nobody has, the, excuse me, nobody has the guts to stand up and take that risk. I mean, George Will was saying if you offer half price, he ain't turning off the spigot no matter what. Because he needs the money. Right. Their, their economy... So they should try it. Next time you speak with European leaders, I need you to suggest this to them. Oh, believe me, we do. And they don't, nobody... I met this week with some of them, and many of them express tremendous frustration as well. But they're they're not showing the leadership that uh, that we would hope. By the way, it was an interesting story that nobody paid attention to that I think is important. You know that 30 students from Al-Quds and Be'er Zaid went to Auschwitz this week. Whoa. Palestinians with a professor to to study the Shoah, the Holocaust, and now they've been condemned on their return and are being threatened and uh, harassed. But they they knew it. But when they went, what do you think? What do you think of their premise to go? That they that these are that there are people there who who want to see beyond the moment. That even on, right. on within all of this, there are still some bright lights. But I have to tell you about this 
billboard. Oh, yeah, what's his billboard story? In Gaza, which in no way picked up, but it's really interesting to me because it tells you what the thinking, where they're headed. And you know that in Egypt, uh, they're, they're going into this election, and so the whole country is tied up in it, and they're still cracking down in the Sinai and have cracked down on Gaza. In, in Hamas put up a huge billboard, and as you know, this was their way either to taunt Israelis, the West, and to, to do political advertising. But this is a huge billboard, build, you know, uh, several stories high, and it has the leadership of the Arab world, and it shows Kania and Mashal of Hamas, the leaders of Qatar, Altani and Tamim, and Erdogan of Turkey. Hmm. And they put this up and send this message to to the world that these are, because those are the ones who are now providing them with aid and, and with assistance, and from whom they want to get more money, but the, to, to um, and they talk about, you know, getting Jerusalem back, and uh, et cetera. Do you think Erdogan minds being in that company? Erdogan is is part of that company, and that's exactly the message, that when we look at it, and they, people talk about him, you know, that he's a member of NATO, and that he's this, this is the real orientation of, of Erdogan. I think that's why the outcome of the election is is uh, of such concern to people, and why we should all be concerned uh, about what uh, what he's done. That Turkey is is a significant player. The economy has been uh, badly hurt, uh, and he has a lot of internal uh, distractions as well. But I think that the fact that they put up this billboard, it's, it's a political message, but it's much more than that. And and the extension now of of Hamas. Hezbollah now rebuilding internally, by the way, and we know that they that they are uh, that they're helping to build the forces in uh, in Syria, but they're also trying to extend it, and they they're involved all over the world. The, the level of their involvement, sponsored by Iran, is increasing all the time, and the same thing with Hamas with the, the new assertiveness with the missiles and stuff flying over the border and attempts to shoot people, the, the big tunnels that were found, uh, this, these are all indications, and it shouldn't be lost because people are focused on the collapse of the process or particular negotiations. You've got to look at what's happening on the ground all the time. Who did you mention was cracking down in, in this conversation on the social media? That was Erdogan? Erdogan was the one who closed the Twitter down, right. and he's now reopened it, but it was actually a popular move inside Turkey. For right. I don't understand, but... Not amongst young people. Hey, come on. Even segments of our own community would be thankful if Twitter was closed down. Um, <laughs> As somebody who doesn't tweet or Twitter, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't care. Will you be visiting Ehud Olmert in uh, prison, or is that a private matter which you would not discuss publicly? <laughs> He's not in prison yet, so it's well, premature. Don't you want to plan in advance? I mean. <laughs> uh, Malcolm, next week, Shabbat Hagadol, your pre-Passover message. Please prepare accordingly. Start making <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm Holine is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Good job.